Good morning. A number of you don't know my family and I very well. We have, uh, I and my brother have lived in Bloomington for about almost 45 years. So that's a long time. Been a part of this church from its beginning and over the last 10 years or so have served as missionaries in the country of Zambia. Um, and our mission has us on a rotation where we are uh, in Zambia for four years and then back in America for one year. And so we've just begun that period of one year, um, have been back about 10 days. I'd like my family to stand, my wife Terry, and Mary, you can stand, and John and Sarah. Um, Yes, John has grown, um, and Sarah even has too. My daughter Elizabeth and Lane are right here. If you guys can stand, you're still part, even though you're a new family. Um, okay, thanks. As I do look out on your faces, there are many of you that are fondly remembered, and there are some that I wish were here. Um, and who are not, and uh, that does make me sad. But Eric and Helen, we still think about your daughter. Some of you have less hair than you used to. I don't know, David, if your hair is less. Um, I don't see where Phil is, but I don't see how you can get less than what there was last time. <laughs> the... Uh, the problem that some missionaries have when you live in a country like we do, um, that is a former English colony, you drive on the other side of the road. And so if you see me driving the wrong way, you can either say, there goes our missionary, or you can say you're driving the wrong way. Um, either one is okay. If you come up to me, and I get a desperate look on my face. That means I've forgotten my name. I've instructed my family, if they're in that conversation pit, to kind of say, Oh, hi, Hamish. How are you? And how are your nine children? Um, Billy, Bobby, Betty. And, you know, they've been instructed to do that so that I'll say, Oh, yeah, hi, how are you? Um, uh, but, Eleanor, you will remember... Uh, this joke of two women who came up to each other in the mall and they were elderly and they hadn't seen each other for a while and one of them greeted the other and said it is so good to see you but I'm sorry I've forgotten your name can you remind me and her friend said to her do you have to know right now um, <laughs> so that's a little bit what we uh are experiencing we're furnishing a house um, and so if you just by mistake leave something out in front of your house we might take it uh, if we drive by we just bought a car recently and and now Jeff Ewer and his family and I are beginning the fellowship of the dimple um, because both our cars have been damaged by storms and uh, if our daughter Mary happens to drive that car, 
we will refer to it as Hail Mary. Um, that's actually my wife's joke. That was really good. I, I, she doesn't normally do puns. I can't do them. Uh, but that was a, a good one. Um, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to the fifth chapter of the book of Revelation. In our home church in Zambia, Grace Reformed Baptist Church, as I have opportunities to preach, I've been preaching through the book of Revelation and recently spoke on chapter 5, and so I'm bringing that word again. Revelation chapter 5. And I saw in the hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took it from the hand, from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints." And they sang a new song saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals. For thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Let's pray just once again. Heavenly Father, please take this portion of your word, burn it into our minds, O God. Give us, as Stephen prayed, a vision of the risen Son of God, the Lamb of God standing and slain and draw us to him O God for we ask this in Christ's name Amen as I say I've been preaching from the book of Revelation in our home church and so let me just review a few things 
the book of Revelation is a prophecy, but it's written in the form of a letter, and it uses what theologians call apocalyptic language. Now, what does that mean? A prophecy does mean that it's going to be telling about things that are coming in the future, but also in the, in the very first part of the book, it makes clear that this is a prophecy that's going to exhort us to obedience. It's also written in the form of a letter to seven real churches with real people, real saints, real heretics, real problems, real difficulties. But it's also written to us because each of those seven letters is addressed to the one, to those who have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now that bit about apocalyptic language from the very first verse of the book in the very first chapter it alerts us that the language in this book is going to be symbolic none of the translations get it right uh, verse 1 talks about how the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John. That word in my translation communicated it. The only way to really translate it to get at what it means is he signed it. That is he made it known by means of signs and symbols. So right from the very first verse of the book we're told that this book is going to be filled with symbols and signs that we have to figure out how to understand them. Now God is the one who gave the revelation. The content of that revelation is Jesus Christ and he gave it to show to his bondservants. That's us and the people to whom it was first addressed what must soon take place. And he sent his angel to communicate the revelation to the Apostle John who wrote it down under the inspiration of God's Spirit. Now there's a graphic on the screen that shows a little bit of the structure of the book. There were four visions that God granted to his servant John and those four visions or series of visions uh, are preceded by an introduction and followed by a conclusion. And the passage that we're going to look at today is part of chapters 4 and 5. And if you would read chapters 4 and 5, you would see one word coming up time and time and time and time and time again. And that is the word throne. And what we are ushered into in these two chapters is God's throne room in heaven. He is seated right there on the throne. And chapter 5 is what we would call an enthronement ceremony. Now, I realize that in America we're not very big on ceremonies today. Um, there's something about our culture that uh, exalts informality, but that's not like the country where we come from. 
um, in Zambia, ceremonies are very important, whether they be tribal ceremonies or national ceremonies. We just had, we've only had four presidents in our entire post-colonial history and the second president just died recently and there were a number of ceremonies surrounding his death and the third president died just about two years ago and again a number of ceremonies and in scripture they are indeed very important the theme of what I want to talk about today is that you and I each one of us need to ascribe glory to the sovereign Lamb of God. And I think this passage gives us at least three reasons, perhaps more, as to why we should ascribe glory to the sovereign Lamb of God. And the first one I find in the first seven verses, and that is because only Jesus can execute God's sovereign plan. Only Christ, the Lamb of God, can execute God's sovereign plan. If you look at the first verse, God is on the throne and he has a book or a scroll in his right hand. And those two images right there, seated on the throne and holding something in his right hand, signify God's sovereignty, his rule over all things. Now, I don't think I need to tell you in America because I know you understand it, but I do think somewhat from an African perspective and the rulers of this world do hold God and his rule and his law and his kingship in contempt in derision the pagan leaders at this time the time that John was writing did whatever they wanted with impunity and the people to whom John was writing were certainly tempted to think that not only was the world out of control but that Caesar was indeed Lord. Um, the Caesar at this time, the emperor uh, under whom these churches lived was the emperor Domitian, and he took for himself the title Lord and God. But this passage reorients our thinking. The throne room of God tells us that what appears to be the reality is indeed not the reality. The scroll in the hand of God had writing on it and it was sealed shut with seven seals. Now the word for sealed uh, in verse 1 doesn't simply mean closed. It's actually quite emphatic. It means securely sealed. And the fact that there are seven seals and Roman emperors used to seal certain documents with seven seals further emphasizes the fact that this document is closed. Now what is the scroll? Is it the Lamb's Book of Life? Some have even wondered if it's the Old Testament. I don't think so because if you look in chapter 6 when the seals begin to be opened what comes forth is judgment. All the judgments in the book of Revelation come from this scroll but the rest of the book of Revelation is not simply about judgments it is also about salvation for God's people judgment for God's enemies but salvation 
for God's people. So this scroll that is in, in the hand of God the Father is God's book of redemption and judgment. Indeed, it gives God's eternal plan. And it especially concerns the inheritance that is in store for all those whom Christ has redeemed. I think most of you saw the picture that pretty much we all saw uh, several months ago when there was the raid in Pakistan and Osama bin Laden and others were killed. Uh, and we saw the, the, the leaders of our country in a room, um, but that room was really just watching what was happening. The command center was in another room with the director of the CIA, you know, and you can imagine him having a notebook about how this raid was supposed to proceed. But that raid was filled with contingencies and all those kind of things of if this happens, then this will happen. If this happens, then this. That's not like this scroll. It is a war. But this scroll has been fixed in the eternal plan of God and it has been fixed by the work of Christ. Now in verse 2 it talks about a strong angel who asks a question, who can open this scroll? Sometimes we might read right over that. I'm not sure why it says strong angel, but this strong angel also seems to appear in chapters 10 and 18. And his question is, who can open the scroll? Who can break its seals? Who can execute God's plan of redemption and judgment. And no one is found. There is no created being who can execute this task. No one is worthy. And so in verse 4, John begins to weep. And not just cry, but weep greatly. Because no one is found worthy to open the book or to look into it. Now in verse 5, one of the angels, <coughs> and I take it that these elders are some order of angels. Uh, the 24 elders are some angelic order. And most of the commentaries, I think, get this wrong. They seem to think it as, you know, oh, John, stop, stop crying. Uh, it's actually stronger than that, a rebuke. Stop weeping. John was weeping because he feared that God's plan would not be fulfilled. And the angel says to him, how in the world can the plan of the Almighty and Sovereign God not be fulfilled? And that's an encouragement to me because many times I despair of the fulfillment of God's plan. And this is God's word to each of you who despair of the fulfillment of God's plan. That word is stop weeping. Nothing can stop the fulfillment of God's plan. John had somehow forgotten about the Messiah and he's talked about in verse 5. The two pictures that are drawn of the Messiah both come from the Old Testament. The lion that is from the tribe of Judah you can read about that on the screen. That's from Genesis. Uh, 
chapter 49, verses 8 to 10. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So Judah is compared to a young lion growling in, in his strength. You want a picture of that? Think of Ben Carell, a young lion growling in his strength, capturing his prey and then returning to his lair. In the book of Genesis, that's, that's a foretelling of what Christ would do and indeed has done defeating the enemy and then returning to his lair, coming back, leaving heaven, executing the plan of his father, and then coming back. He has overcome. The second picture that is drawn here is found in Isaiah chapter 11, the first five verses. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from its, his roots will bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see. Nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor. And decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins. And faithfulness the belt about his waist. A shoot comes forth from Jesse. And that is indeed the Messiah, the son of David. And it is foretold that he would come and strike the earth with the rod of his mouth he would slay the wicked with his breath he would overcome now how does he overcome John sees in verse 5 I'm sorry, verse 6. He sees the Lamb of God very near the throne, part of the concentric circles of angels that are surrounding the throne. And he sees a Lamb standing as if slain. The Lamb is standing, he is alive forevermore. He has been raised from the dead. He was slain, and now he is standing. He had been led like a sheep to be slaughtered. 
he has engaged the enemy and conquered. He defeated the enemy by dying and now he can open the book of God's redemption and God's judgment because he was slain. He has rendered that book of redemption sure and secure by being slain and now standing. And at the end of verse 7, he takes the scroll from his father. Now just picture that. You've got metaphors of strength of a lion, a young lion in its strength going after its prey, a soldier defeating the enemy. Don't get too much stronger than that. But you've also got a metaphor of humility. A lamb who was slain. How can you be afraid of a lamb? Now in Zambia, when we have things that don't seem to go together, we talk about them getting married. The world doesn't know how to marry metaphors of humility and metaphors of strength. But that's exactly what we find in this passage. What the world can't do in terms of bringing those metaphors together, God does. Glory be to this Lamb. Power and dominion and sovereignty belong to this Lamb because He is now standing having once been slain. So that's the first reason we should ascribe glory to the Lamb of God because only He can execute God's plan of judgment. The second reason we should ascribe glory to Him is He has redeemed a people for God. I find that in verses 9 and 10. Now before you look there, I want you to picture in your mind a slave market. There's a tree in our town, uh, Vendola, where the slaves were sold. It's not a very prominent tree. It's in one of the bad neighborhoods of town. But years and years ago when slaves were sold, that's the tree under which they were sold. Aristotle, the philosopher, described a slave as a living tool. And these paper people were sold under that tree as living tools. Now just think in your mind, if Hollywood was going to portray a liberator coming to that slave market, how would Hollywood portray that? Well, usually films get it exactly wrong, but my mind goes to a film by about the life of William Wilberforce. And that's one film I can commend to you without reserve. If you haven't seen Amazing Grace, you need to see it. Because you see those, those two metaphors of strength and humility in Wilberforce's life. You see a man who stood literally against all odds when literally almost everyone was against him to, to undermine uh, the trafficking of slaves and the trading of slaves. And you also see a man who was racked by illness. There were other illnesses that Wilberforce has that the film doesn't portray. It's particularly meaningful to me 
because the disease that Wilberforce had was called colitis and that's one that runs in our family indeed I have it it's not fun but Wilberforce also had to wear a brace under his clothes to uh, counteract as best as could be done a severe curvature of the spine but yet he still stood strongly and firmly year after year after year and finally he did overcome now what Wilberforce did is just a little human picture of what the Lamb of God has done he has purchased men for God verse 9 makes very clear that the means by which they were purchased was his blood that is his death the propitiation that he made the atonement the covering of sin the way he turned away the wrath of God now it's also very clear whom he purchased he did not purchase all mankind rather he purchased men for God from every tribe he did not purchase every tribe language tongue and nation he purchased people from every tribe tongue people and nation this is one of the great encouragements for every missionary who does his work because what every missionary thinks about late at night is am I even doing anything is what I'm doing effective is there going to be any lasting fruit this verse assures us that some have been purchased from every language group there's about 70 to 75 different languages in the country of Zambia some from every language group will be redeemed some from every country some from every ethnic group no matter how you divide up the world some from each of those group and this is what gives us hope it's not a hope that comes from us it's a hope that comes from the work of Christ now what he has done in purchasing people is he has brought a kingdom into being he has turned sinners into priest he has made loyal subjects out of rebels for all of us who have been redeemed by Christ that is what we already are we are priests we need no intermediary other than Christ alone each one of us may go to God freely through Christ alone don't need to go through a pastor don't need to go through some person Christ alone is the only intermediary that we need I want you to think of the salvation that Christ purchased for his people as a package a big package and he purchased it completely not partially not potentially he purchased it completely and everything having to do with our salvation is in that package election calling 
regeneration, faith, repentance, justification, sanctification, glorification. The whole package has been purchased by Christ and now it may be applied to us through the Holy Spirit. And it is applied, God knows why I don't, it is applied in stages. We receive the first fruits when we are converted and then we receive gradually some fruits during our life and then when we die our sanctification is finally complete but it is still not done. At the return of Christ which this book talks about then we receive the whole package. Then the redemption of our bodies come. Then everything is there. All of it purchased by Christ and given out to his people through the Holy Spirit this talks about our future inheritance again part of what Christ has purchased for us those who are purchased by Christ will reign with him upon the earth now I know how Christians are treated in a number of countries of the world we're tolerated, we're looked on as a joke, we're thrown an occasional dog bone, laughed at, persecuted, killed. Just like the people that were addressed in chapters 2 and 3 in the churches that were first addressed. But what God tells us through his bondservant John is that we will reign with Christ one day glory be to Christ glory be to the Lamb he is worthy to take this book and to break its seals let me come now to the third point and last glory and honor and sovereignty is to be ascribed to Jesus Christ because only he is worshipped with God the Father and God the Spirit and we find that in verse 8 and verses 11 to the end of the chapter. Now before you look there, I want you to picture something else in your mind. Some of you will know that I'm a fan of athletics or what we call here track and field. And next summer will be the 2012 Olympics. I want you to imagine a small, poor country sending one of its sons to the Olympics to compete with the big boys to run against Usain Bolt or Kenanisa Bekele or a whole myriad uh, of others and think of that son from a small and poor country not only competing against the big boys but winning and people would be absolutely stunned we didn't expect this this nobody from this know-nothing country to win. And now picture that athlete when he returns home. What will his welcome back home be like? Well, that's just a dim picture of what we have in this chapter. God has an eternal plan. Christ has executed that plan through his work on the cross. And now he comes back 
to heaven. The lion has conquered and he returns to his lair. And what happens? All kinds of worship breaks out. The mightiest of angels fall down prostrate. Now, in the first service, I asked my brother because he was right here and because I knew he knew the answer. Our, our views of angels are completely wrong. And, and the, the way you can start to get a correct view of angels is just to look that when he, any angel appears to a human, the first thing he has to say is fear not. That should be pretty clear to us that angels are absolutely fearsome beings more powerful than any of us. And these powerful, mighty, strong angels are falling down prostrate by the thousands and worshiping the Lamb. This Lamb who was mocked, who was reviled, who was spat upon, who was jeered and told, come down from that cross. He is the one who is receiving the worship of God's mightiest angels. Glory to the Lamb, because He did not come down from the cross. He was slain, but now He stands. Now in verse 8, it says that these angels who fall prostrate hold in their hands golden bowls of incense, full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. I can't tell you what those prayers are, but I can tell you in the next chapter there's a very similar picture of those who have been martyred because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And they are there in heaven, it says, under the altar. And they are asking, How long, O Lord, will you keep from avenging our blood to those who killed us on the earth? So I take it that these prayers of the saints, in part, in part, they are songs and hymns of praise, but in part they are also cries for justice, cries for vindication, cries for judgment. God, defend your people. We are not allowed to take vengeance. Scripture, Romans 12, is absolutely clear. We may not take vengeance, but God can, and He will. Father, will you not do it soon? Verses 11 and 12 think, speak of thousands and thousands, 10,000 times 10,000, an almost infinite number of angels worshiping the Lamb because He was slain, because He has redeemed a people for God. This is how he has saved God's chosen ones. This is also how he has judged his enemies. If he saved only some, then that means he passed over the rest. And their sins are not covered. And their sins will indeed be judged. Everything comes from the cross and is announced in the throne room of God. Some people have been delivered from the wrath of God the Father. Some people will yet be delivered from the wrath of God the Father 
and some will never be delivered from the wrath of God the Father. Everything comes from right here. And so the song that is sung is worthy, is the Lamb. I don't know if you can see what what, what this is saying. Please fear this Lamb. And when I say fear, I mean be afraid of this Lamb. I know that this Lamb is our friend is our Savior. But in this passage, He is strong and almighty and sovereign. And because He is, all judgment has been granted to Him, He is to be feared. He has the power and authority to cast into hell and He has the authority and power to redeem. And He has done it all through His work on the cross. Worthy is that lamb to be feared, to be praised, to be worshipped. Now verse 13 looks into the future. It says that every created thing, and I take that to mean everything, redeemed and unredeemed, will one day give praise to this lamb. For some it will be willing praise. We will fall down and say, yes, master, Praise be to you, the Lamb. You have redeemed me. Praise be to you. And some, it will be unwilling praise, but they will have to give it. To God and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion. Let me try and apply this because some of you are saying, how is he going to apply this? He's talked about the Lamb of God Redeeming some and not redeeming others. Yes. It's exactly what this passage teaches. And I have no idea which is which. God does. The Lord knows those who are His, but we don't. And that's why there is good hope for each one of us today. For those of you who are not redeemed, I ask you, today is a day of grace. I have no assurance that tomorrow will be a day of grace for you. But today is a day of grace. Do you not want to make an end of your sin? Do you not want to be purchased by this lamb? One day, every knee will bow before him. Will you bow the knee today if you have not done so? It's an open invitation right here. More than an invitation, it's a command. This lamb will be exalted one day. That day is not yet. Will you bow before him today? Are you not weary of your sin? Are you not tired? Don't you remember what one of the servants of God named Augustine who struggled mightily with sexual immorality and lust and as he was trying to come to Christ 
he was saying to himself, why not make an end of my sin today? Why not? Go to Christ today. He will receive you. Appeal to him. Ask him to give you a new heart, a clean heart. The message is pretty similar to those of you who are redeemed. This lamb who was slain is now standing. Would you not fall prostrate today and worship him? Call it practice for what we will do in eternity. Ascribe blessing and honor and riches and authority and dominion to this lamb. Cry out to this lamb and ask him to bring forth justice for his elect, to stop the persecutors, to slay the wicked. That is what he will do. And that judgment has been rendered certain by the work of Christ. Don't you remember how, how Martin Luther's hymn goes when he talks about the enemy? He says, For lo, his doom is sure. Why is the doom of Satan sure? Because his rebellion and sin is not covered and never will be covered. His doom is sure. No hope for Satan. No hope for those angels who rebelled with him. But for us, there is still the strong and almighty Lamb standing as if slain today. Almighty, all-powerful, all-sovereign. Will you come to him? Please do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture. We give glory to you. We give glory to the Lamb because he was slain and he has purchased men for God. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you, Lamb and God. We, we do ascribe to you dominion and power and authority, both now and forever. Amen.